Welcome in. Happy Saturday, y'all. Hello. I am Sean Corey. You can find all my links at SeanVPlanet.com. Um, this will be the last good morning uh, <laughs> said as um, this is going to be my last Saturday morning stream. I'm going to be moving these live streams to Monday nights at 8 p.m. Um, Central Time, the one true time zone. It seems like after all the questions, um, <laughs> after all the responses, people wanted me to move this to Monday nights. And I'll try to get back to doing like good news for my dude's streams on Wednesdays and occasionally like a Thursday or a Tuesday randomly. So I got more work to do with all of that and um, on the weekends sometimes. I'm also going to be disc golfing more frequently in my life. I need to get out there and uh, start frolfing some more. I'm missing it. And uh, I think I'm going to start streaming my, my rounds live on TikTok and just answer questions as I, as I play about you know faith, spreading the gospel to all the degenerates over there on that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all the degenerate sinners over there on that app of TikTok. Um, so if you want to watch me live, subscribe to my TikTok channel and be on the lookout for me going live on there, like on random afternoons, mostly like probably Saturdays or Sundays for um, a live stream of me on TikTok while I, uh, you know, bang some chains and throw some plastic around and talk about the good news. And be sure to follow and subscribe on, you know, to Sean V Planet on YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, all the podcast apps, Instagram, Gab, Telegram, TikTok, Baratario Times app, all the things, all the places. My P.O. box is in the show notes if you want to send me cool stuff. I've gotten some cool stuff in the last month from y'all. Thank you. And um, we got a cool gift that I'm going to be showing off next week on my stream as it relates to my topic that I'm talking about. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> Check that out. Um, again, that's going to be next Monday. I believe it's the 6th. Yeah, Monday the 6th is uh, going to be my next live stream. Um, but today, right now, last Saturday morning stream, we're going to be talking about the Islamic faith, Muslims, how close they are to finding the father and following his son, and how we can reach out to them and teach them about the God they know all about and want to trust in, but have not yet connected, have not connected to spiritually yet. They have yet to connect spiritually to God. They know all about him. <laughs> they want to obey him. They want to be obedient to him, but they're just lacking a little bit. We're going to get into that here. My girlfriend says, yay and cry face. The mix of wild range of emotions coming from a girlfriend in the chat right now. Um, as usual. <laughs> as usual. The emotionally unstable woman. Uh, but let's get into it. Send the, send the questions in the chat. I'll get to them. But first, let's explain what Islam is what the faith actually is, and not the garbage that you are told about it on cable news, talk radio shows, in conversations with people who have never lived in Muslim nations or studied or practiced the faith. Um, Islam means submission. It literally means submission. As in the complete obedience to and service to the all-powerful monotheistic God 
who created everything and everyone. They believe that this God called Allah has used many prophets throughout history to reveal his word to humanity, but that Muhammad was the final and perfect prophet elected to reveal the whole truth to all the people of earth for all time to come. Muslims are the people who practice the Islamic faith as both a religion and a complete way of life. Islam is not only a worldview, but the rule of law of the universe. These Muslims believe that Islam is not a new religion created by Muhammad in the 7th century, but the same truth that God revealed through all his prophets to every person in all of history. The revealed word of Allah as told to us by Muhammad stands upon five main beliefs. The first is a belief in the absolute unity of God. The second is a belief in angels. The third is a belief in prophets. The fourth is a belief in scripture. And the fifth is a belief in the final judgment. The final judgment not only for each of us as individuals, but for humanity as a whole in the end times. Islam has five basic acts that are considered mandatory works for believers to carry out. These are known as the five pillars of Islam. I guess I should, yeah. These are known as the five pillars of Islam. Shahada, or profession of faith. Salah, or prayer. Zakat, or almsgiving. Psalm, or fasting. Hajj, or the pilgrimage to Mecca. These five pillars are the ritual obligations of Muslims, which makes this a works-based religion that not only requires the faith of believers, but also mandatory actions and behaviors. And a failure to accomplish these works will result in eternal damnation. Islam recognizes four books as holy. The first being the Torah, the second being the Jewish prophetic books, the third being the Gospels, and the fourth being the Quran. However, most Muslims believe that the first three books have been corrupted. As a result, they rely on the Quran as flawless and most holy. In order to keep the Quran flawless, Muslims believe that it should not be translated outside of the Arabic language. Many Muslims who have read the Quran do not understand what it says. Instead, they depend on religious teachers called Imams. Islam also reveres Isa, their name for Jesus, as one of God's prophets. They believe that Jesus was human, inspired and led by God, but not divine in nature. According to the Muslim faith, Muhammad was the final prophet and so is seen as the greatest by almost every practicing Muslim. If you didn't understand this already, <laughs> not questioning your intelligence, but a worldview is simply a person's view of reality, shaped by many different factors, environments, and life experiences. History, culture, language, and tradition are among some of the main factors which provide a framework for how a person filters information, understands truth, and or makes decisions.
The Muslim worldview is held by over 1 billion people today. 1.5 billion is the current estimated estimation by the mainstream, by mainstream whatever, experts, quote-unquote. The Quran is considered their sacred book. Both Sunnis and Shias, the two, the two main branches of Islam, follow the Quran. We won't get into the, those divisions and schisms and all the politics involved today, and maybe we will at the later date, but not today. We're just talking about the faith in general. Their place of worship is called a mosque, and Muslims view Jesus or Esau as one of their prophets and believe that Jesus did not die, but instead was raised to heaven and will return to earth someday. Muslims typically view Christians as blasphemers since they call Jesus the Son of God. Muslims characterize Christians as morally loose people who drink alcohol, smoke, and disrespect women, which makes a lot of their opinions seem really based, you know? <laughs> That's why they often seem very based in their opinions and statements. Um, and that's an argument, that's a very valid argument to be made. Drink alcohol, smoking, disrespecting women. Yeah. In Muslim languages, Jesus is known as Isa. I-S-A. Isa. The Injil, or the Injil, is the New Testament Gospels. The English word God will be understood by almost all Muslims. But Allah is just their term for the one true God who created the universe. Isa al-Masih, al-Masih, Isa al-Masih is the phrase used to describe Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the penultimate prophet and messenger of God, who was sent to guide the children of Israel with a revelation through the Injil or the Gospel. According to the Quran, Isa al-Masih is far more than just an ordinary prophet. He is Allah's word and a spirit from Allah. That he is a pure son, born of a virgin. He has the power to open blind eyes, heal leprosy, raise the dead, and even create. And that he was raised up to Allah himself. He is the sign of the hour. His mother is the only woman in the Quran mentioned by name, Miriam, and he is in the nearest company to Allah, where he is honored in the hereafter as he was on earth. All these things cause Muslims to be attracted to Isa al-Masih naturally. The Quran differs from the New Testament in proclaiming that Jesus was neither crucified nor died on the cross and especially in rejecting the divinity of Jesus as God incarnate, or the literal Son of God. There are many attributes in the Quran that have not been given to any person or prophet in any era, except to Jesus Christ, peace be upon his name. Isa al-Masih is said in the Quran to have been born of a virgin, was alone given the title Messiah or al-Masih, he is the only one who is called the Word of God, which means the right expression of the true God, the Word being eternal and everlasting, the Logos.
Esau is called the Spirit of God, was alone distinguished from all the other prophets as being without sin. He is the one who is blessed wherever he goes, was able to do the miracles that could not be done by others, was alone able to raise the dead. He knows the secrets of the unseen. He alone exchanged the responsibility of authority with God. He alone prophesied of his death and resurrection from the dead. He alone grants his followers a high position and confirmation on the day of resurrection. He alone is the sign of the hour, and he alone is the only one who was supported by the Holy Spirit. Muslims believe that Isa al-Masih is righteous and holy, is the Messiah, has power over death, was born of a virgin, was sinless, is the word of Allah, is the spirit of Allah, and came in human form to teach us the will of Allah. The crucial part about Esau that they are missing is the sacrifice that was made in our place on the cross, the oneness with Allah, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that we are all now afforded that directly connects us spiritually to our Creator. The Spirit of God that now dwells in true believers, that teaches, guides, corrects, reveals, and inspires all mankind who choose to accept the atoning sacrifice of Esau in our place. The Muslims believe Allah to be one God and refuse to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity or the basic principle that God exists and interacts with us in three forms. They deny that Esau, the Son, is Allah, and that the Father, Yah, and the Holy Spirit are all forms of the Almighty God as well. Muslims know all about God and are familiar with the concept of the Father and Creator, and they do truly place high importance upon the Son respect him as an important person, and believe him to be a righteous prophet. But they fail to truly understand the divine nature of Jesus and the necessary sacrifice that he made for us in order for us to finally be able to overcome our sin and the eternal damnation that awaits us without being born again of God's Spirit. Belief in a God of three persons is one of the most demanding biblical teachings. Christianity is the only world religion that makes this claim. The doctrine of the Trinity is truly distinctive of the Christian faith, crucial because it deals with who God is, what he is like, and how he works. Christians believe the doctrine is necessary to do justice to the testimony of Scripture the primary source of our knowledge of God. We must speak concerning God in the terms he uses. Biblical evidence has three facets. One, there is, there is one God. There is only one God. The second being the three in oneness, that three, three, there is a three-part essence of God that exists in three persons who are God. 
I will get into the Trinity more sometime in the future. Um, I'll do a full stream on the Trinity and my thoughts and revelations about it, what the church teaches, what the Bible teaches, everything and everything. But for now, this just needs to be explained briefly to show the distinct differences between Islam and Christianity. And what I have seen and come to know as true about the essence of God. The biblical witness of three divine persons seems to be undeniable, despite how many supposed contradictions and misconceptions can be provided by skeptics and non-believers. God himself, God refers to himself both as he and us. In the Old Testament, the plural form of one of the nouns for God is quantitative. Let us make man in our image. The plural appears both with the verb let us make and the possessive suffix our in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 11. Isaiah in vision hears the Lord. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? In Genesis 2.24, men and women are to become one, a union of two separate entities. Significantly, the same word is used of God in Deuteronomy 6.4. Marriage and God's nature are both described as a plural unity. Three divine persons are often linked together in Isaiah 42, 61, and 63. The angel tells Mary that her child will be called holy because the Holy Spirit will come upon her in Luke 1. At the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, three divine persons are present. Jesus links his miracles to the spirit of God's power in Matthew 12. Because of the Great Commission, new disciples are baptized in the singular name of the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28. Um, pronounced evidence can be found throughout the Gospel of John, um, chapters 14 through 16, or 14 through 17, I'm sorry, make it very clear. Um, and you can correct and read, read John, book of John, 14 through 17. You can find all of this um, in there. That Jesus declares the Son is sent by the Father, coming from him. The Spirit is given by the Father, sent from the Father, and proceeds from the Father. The Son prays for the coming of the Spirit. The Father sends the Spirit in the Son's name. The Son sends the Spirit from the Father. The Spirit's ministry continues the Son's, bringing to remembrance what the Son has said, bearing witness to the Son, declaring what He hears from the Son, glorifying the Son. And Jesus prays that His disciples may be one as He and the Father are one. Peter also names three divine persons at Pentecost, exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he poured out this, Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit, in Acts 2. Paul often speaks of the triune God relating salvation to the three persons of the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 1 um, is good po you know, 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians um, 13. Um, also in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
The form as well as content of his writing communicates his belief in the book of Romans, um, God's judgment upon everyone in 118 um, through 320, justification through faith in Christ, Romans 321 through 81, chapter 8, verse 1, life in the spirit in Romans 8. Paul also includes them in his benedictions. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Similar formulaic expressions appear also in Peter's and Jude's epistles. 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1, um, and Jude 20. 20 and 21. I also covered it a bit in my episode, my <laughs> previous episode, live stream 49. Who Jesus Loved, which was all about John of Patmos. Um, I explained in that, but I'll kind of explain it again real quick, that John was the one man who physically and spiritually was closest to Jesus Christ in, in his life as a man here on earth. He was the one who Jesus loved most and was likely the most important and set apart of the early church fathers. He clearly states in his letters to the Ephesian church that Jesus was the Son of God and explains the light and love that can only be found in the full belief in the triune God. That three parts of God exist and that we can now know and experience all of them following the atoning sacrifice of the only Son. Read 1 John for yourself. Um, it's truly one of the best books in the entire Bible. It's my, probably my favorite. Um, explains how to combat heresy, how to fellowship with fellow Christians, how the church should be organized, and what being a Christian is all about. What being a Christian is and what living for Christ is all about. And it is what helped me take that leap from denying the divinity of Jesus and helped me understand the Trinity for myself. Um, not because some pope told me <laughs> I must believe it or else, um, not because it's what I'm expected to believe, but truly what, you know, the Trinity is and how to explain it for myself and know it for myself. Um, not just repeating words on a paper. Many Muslims believe that the doctrine of the Son of God is a creed invented by Christians partnering other gods to God Almighty. And it has no origin in the scriptures. On the contrary, the Torah provides this doctrine, which is rooted in its holy verses. So not only does the New Testament proclaim all of this, as we just went over, but Psalms 2, Proverbs 30, Proverbs 8, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, so on, so on, so on. All the types of Christ, everything in the Old Testament was basically a forward-pointing motion towards God and towards the Trinity itself, the three parts that was to come. Um, who is the Son who deserves all this loyalty and honor found throughout the Old Testament as he is entitled to be called a mighty God and an eternal Father? If he's constantly referred to as the Father, then who is the Son? The Son that is explained in the types of Christ throughout the Old Testament. Esau al-Masih, his, you know, peace be upon him, <laughs> the word of God, the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, is the messenger of God and his word that he conveyed to Mary 
and a spirit from him. Who descended from heaven, born of a virgin, and not a created, not created as an exception of all human beings? Um, these are all aspects of the Old Testament. The center of the Torah, or Torah, Torah is what it's known as um, to Muslims, the Torah, Torah. The center of the Torah is our master, Isa al-Masih, peace be upon him. His peace be upon us. The Torah contains more than 300 prophecies about al-Masih, the Messiah. In the Torah, in the Torah, you will find precise details about each aspect of his birth, his life, his service, his wonders and miracles, the Jews refusing him, his trial, his abuse at the hands of the Roman soldiers, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, the duration of his stay in the grave, his glorious resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. All these prophecies were completed precisely. Here's just one of the many prophecies, and then we'll kind of move on. Um, from Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put him, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, 
and made intercession for the transgressors. Yeah. The more and more you look into it, we'll get to this. The very last video I'm going to play is amazing. It's long. Um, but this guy concisely explains everything. <laughs> my ramblings aren't, aren't as concise, aren't as great. Makes a lot, it makes so much sense in my head sometimes, but <laughs> then I read it out loud and I'm like, oh, this might not make sense to other people so well. But, yeah. And then we'll get into this more. Um, but I'm going to play a couple quick clips and a second. We got four clips and we got a final clip at the end. But there is something happening all throughout the Islamic regions of the world in recent times regarding dreams of Isa. Muslims keep being woken up by Isa in dreams and visions, um, both of which are considered um, to be from God to most Muslims. Many Muslims believe that dreams and visions are sent from God. Instead of, uh, you know, Muslims keep being woken up by Isa in dreams and visions himself. He keeps appearing to, speaking with, and physically touching people through dreams and visions, as you'll see in a second. Um, instead of through the normal way of evangelism, which is sharing the gospel or person-to-person -person discipleship. I've personally heard the testimony of two former Muslims who encountered Christ in dreams and decided to sacrifice everything they had, even risking their own lives, to abandon who they were and what they were doing and walk into a life of obedience and faith in Esau. The website dreamsofesau.org, D-R-E-A-M-S-O-F-I-S-A.org, also has a vast catalog of stories about these dreams and visions, as well as a great collection of information regarding Islam, Esau, and the truth about the, about the nature of God. I'm going to play a couple of clips now um, of some born and raised Muslims who encountered Christ and decided to be born again and follow him as a result. So I hope you enjoy. The story you're about to hear is based on real events and is just one example of hundreds of thousands of Muslims who have been met by Jesus Christ in a dream. Ahmed grew up in Mecca, Saudi Arabia as a son to a Mecca Mufti. He grew up a religious Muslim and had memorized the whole Quran at a young age. As a boy, Ahmed was always trying to connect with Allah. He found that connecting with Allah was hard because he felt like he was always the one trying to seek a relationship. He felt like Allah did not want a personal relationship with him. Years and years of pursuing a relationship with Allah led to feelings of emptiness, loneliness, and lack of purpose. On the night of destiny, while Ahmed was sleeping in his bed, a light shined through his balcony. In the light, Ahmed saw a beautiful majestic being, the sound of a thousand rain waters. He began to tremble with fear as the Lord said, Come to me. When he heard this, Ahmed answered, Where do you want me to come to you? And the Lord answered him, Go to the house of the white pillars to find the truth. Ahmed then awoke, his mind and emotions overloaded. The next day, Ahmed was walking and suddenly he found the house with the white pillars that he saw in his dream. Here he met a man 
who shared with him the meaning of the dream. The man told Ahmed that it was Isa who appeared to him in his dream. He went on to share passages in the Quran and Injil that talked about Isa. He shared that Isa is the way, the truth, and the light. He explained that Isa is not only the light from Ahmed's dream, but the light of the world. That he is the word of God that was with God when the earth was formed. Ahmed began to realize that Isa is Lord, and one day he will have to stand before him in judgment. He then surrendered his life to Isa and accepted him the Lord of his life. My name is Ahmed Jaktan, and I am just one example of thousands of people who have been met by Isa, Jesus Christ, in a dream. The Word of God says that God loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. The problem is we have all sinned, and this sin has created a barrier between us and God. This barrier is why God sent Isa as a precious gift to all mankind, to take our sin, to die on the cross as a payment for our sins. Three days later, God rose Jesus from the dead and is now with God in heaven. Today, through Jesus, we can have a personal relationship with God. The Word of God says in Romans 10 verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Today, if you want this personal relationship with God, you can invite him into your life by praying this prayer, Jesus, I confess your Lord. I have sinned and fallen short of you, but I believe you have paid the price for my sin through your death on the cross, and I believe that God has raised you from the grave. Today, I want to invite you into my life as my Lord and Savior, and I want a personal relationship with you. If you prayed this prayer or want to know more about Jesus, please click the button below and someone will reach out to you to share more. Or if you have had a dream about the man in the bright cloak, Jesus Christ, Click the bottom below to explain or share your story. Where are the testimonies that the power of the kingdom is literally influencing people's lives? And that's when it gets a little bit tricky because there's not a whole lot of stories. God has made it clear that we are his preferred agents of change to the world through the Holy Spirit. But sometimes, when truly no one is available, he'll go straight for us himself. This is Ali, and he met Jesus while hanging out at Mecca. Yeah, you heard me, Mecca, the epicenter for the Muslim faith. When he was younger, Ali was a raging alcoholic, and his drinking got so bad that he moved away from his wife and children in Turkey to Saudi Arabia, simply to protect them from himself. While there, some Muslim friends of his talked him into going on Hajj to Mecca, the great pilgrimage to the holiest place in Islam. So I decided to go. And when I went there, everybody needs to sleep together. And everybody also goes seven times around the Kaaba. And they were also going to do the namaz. And there I said, well, maybe something good will come of it. And I did the namaz, the ritual prayers also. 
But I was very ashamed, because I didn't believe in it, and yet I was still doing it. So, everybody that night sleeps around the Kaaba. So I slept there. And then, in the night, I had this dream, and in the dream, Jesus came. First, he touched my forehead with his hand, and he said, You have been saved. You have been saved. Then he opened his hand and placed it on my chest, and he said, You belong to me. One of them, he said, you are saved, and then you belong to me. And he was smiling. And this is what I wanted to say. This is what he looked like. From his waist up, he was naked and shining pure white. He had a beard, like in the pictures, but a little bit longer. His hair and his beard, it was as if every hair was electrified light shining from every hair. That's how handsome he was. And when he smiled, his teeth were shining white. And I was amazed at the way he stood there. And the lower part of him was like a cloud of melted iron. And in that cloud, he was taken up. And then a voice from here started to talk and it was really moving around, in the same way that your mouth moves around when you talk. This voice started from right here. That's how it felt to me. So I woke up my friend, and I said to my friend, Hey, look, do you hear that voice? He said, No. I said, But I've had this dream. I saw Jesus. He said, You ate too much food last night. You've gotten sick. Go back to sleep. What business does Jesus have in Muhammad's capital? So I tried to go back to sleep, but the voice wouldn't let me. It kept talking to me, just like I'm talking to you. And when it was morning time, the friends came over to me, and they said, let's continue on the pilgrimage. And the voice was saying, no, you're not going to go. It wouldn't let me. And the voice was saying to me, go and collect all your stuff and go back to your country. Look for your friends and find them. I didn't understand, but I made up my mind. Okay, I've decided I'm not going to go. I didn't understand it myself. So then I went and took a shower so that I could go back to where I had been. So in order to take a shower, I got undressed. And I looked in this little mirror, and this part was white. But at that time, my hair, my beard, my mustache, there wasn't a single white hair anywhere. And there was this white everywhere. And so I tried to wipe it off. And when I wiped it, it didn't come off. I wiped it with water and soap, and it still didn't go away. And this voice said to me, I'm going to show you even more things than this. And then, since I knew it was Jesus, Right there in the bathroom, I got down on my knees, because the only thing I knew to worship was to go down on my knees. So I got on my knees, and I said, yes, Jesus, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. It's been years since this encounter, and his hair is beginning to gray, but to this day, his chest hair is still white where Jesus touched him in his dream. So it's just a few <laughs> little well-made videos, but there are stories after stories after stories of Jesus appearing 
to true believing Muslims, practicers of Islam. In dreamsofisa.org, I've personally heard the testimony of two people myself in real life. Um, it's happening everywhere. So even when you don't disciple two people, when you don't spread the, spread the good news, Jesus still finds a way to encounter those who need him, um, those who are chosen. It doesn't take dreams to spread the truth and love of God to Muslims. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to come through dreams. We can be the inspiration, the hope, the light that leads those lost souls back into a personal relationship with their creator. Regardless of who they are, where they were born, how they were raised, or what they have done in the past, we all have a chance to return to the Father through the Son to receive the Spirit. And I wanted to share a couple more videos of just the testimonies of those who were converted Muslims um, through their experiences and through discipleship before we kind of get more into some application and how to practically share the gospel with Muslims. We've got two more videos here. I like my friends in Iran. That was the best part. And of course, my family. Ooh, we haven't even started and I'm still like so emotional. <laughs> um, I started when I was nine. The city that I was in, in Iran, called Esmahan. It's a really religious city. It was like so hard for girls. We are so worried that you cannot gonna come back home or something gonna happen to you or the government should do something to you. My Goran teacher came to the class and told me about heaven and hell. As a girl, you should not color your nails and you should not have long nails. And um, God would like tear them out. And even I knew as a nine years old, I'm gonna make a mistake. And I remember as a kid imagining that, that was like so scary and like terrifying. I was like, you know what? I don't wanna talk to God. I don't wanna deal with this. I just wanna live this life happily and make good decision. I said goodbye to him and I was feeling so good the next day. I was like, yay. Because of the situation in Iran, my parents decided for me to just leave the country, which was the best decision, but I didn't realize it back in the time. So I went to Cyprus, uh, which my older sister and her husband used to live there too. They were refugees at that time, so I knew how hard it is to be a refugee. And I couldn't do any study because I didn't have any visa or anything like that. I couldn't drive. Basically, you don't have any identity. It was so hard, but they had like so much peace and hope in their life. And they like, they were like, oh, we're going to figure it out. God's going to open the door. I was like, you guys are so relaxed. Like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> and they were Christian and I didn't know anything about Christ. Like, I didn't even hear his name. That's totally new. And we went to church. So many people, they talk in Farsi. They're worshiping God in Farsi. They dance, they sing for God. Are you kidding? Dress nice, nails are long, colored on their lands. And I was like, wow. And I started reading Bible and I couldn't put my Bible down. 
he's not a mad, angry God who created me, but he's mad at me. He's not that. He created me with so much love and so much passion. He's excited about my life. He doesn't, he even create colors. He gave me the eyes to see the colors. So there is nothing wrong coloring my nails or showing off my hair that he gave me. My sister keeps saying that God is a father. He's loving you. He's amazing. He's going to provide for you and all of that. And I was like, if he's a father, I want to meet that father. I want to see what kind of father he is. They had a really good father. He passed away when I was 19. And uh, Jesus himself, he deal with every single thing that I am going through. He was a refugee. He was hated and he understand me. That understanding, it was like a, such a huge thing for me. One day at the church, I was like, I'm so ready. I'm so ready to accept this. I'm so ready to welcome God to my life. And I cannot wait to see his purpose for my life. Tell me about your relationship with your father. I had a really good father. He was so cute, so loving. So they made so many sacrifices, and I truly appreciate him for all of that. It means a word to me. If he didn't brave enough to help me to get out of the country, I probably didn't know Christ. I probably would suicide myself. I probably, I don't know what would happen to my life. And um, he knew that I'm a Christian, and he was, I shared gospel with him. And he loves it. <laughs> and uh, he was asking questions, and I remember I was keep sharing with him. And um, hopefully I can see him one day. <laughs> if you're talking to a Muslim right now, say back in Iran, what would you want them to know? But I want them to know that God is not as scary, or he's not sitting far away. He's really close. He loves them so much. It doesn't matter how good they are or how bad they think they are, God loves them and he truly is a father. You feel his presence and that's worth everything. You know, when you're born into Islam, that's your identity, it's who you are. I was born and raised in Amman, Jordan for 14 years. I grew up in a pretty large conservative Muslim, very traditional family. I had a lot of questions in regards to Muhammad's life and just the validity of the Quran and salvation was a big one for me. I felt like I could never keep up or measure up to what was expected out of me and they weren't too keen on me asking those questions and you know they'd always say no one knows but Allah and that just didn't really sit well with me. My father was an alcoholic ever since I could remember and my earliest memory of him was when I was five years old and him kicking me to the ground and spitting at me and calling me names that no father should ever call his five-year-old daughter. My home life continued to get worse in Jordan and my mother, who's an American, was mortified. She was afraid for her life and our lives and my mom encouraged my dad to bring us to America to better our English for you know jobs down the road or schooling and he agreed to. So they moved us from Jordan to America in the year of 2000 and when my dad would come and visit, his alcoholism just got worse and worse. 
That's when I met a boy in high school and we fell in love and um, it felt good to be loved by someone and um, one thing led to another and I found myself on my parents' bathroom floor holding a positive pregnancy test at the age of 17. Had I gone to my dad um, culturally, um, he would have murdered me and I'm not just saying that figuratively but that was my reality. He would have murdered me and had I gone to my mom, um, she would have told my dad and same thing would happen so I didn't really have anybody to confide in and the only person that I confided in was the boyfriend that I was dating at that time and we felt like we didn't really have a whole lot of options and the only option like we felt we had was to go through with an abortion. That was very hard for me because I've always valued life. I would daydream about what it'd be like to hold my baby one day and to have gone through that was very devastating for me and I struggled with shame, um, embarrassment and depression, anxiety and uh, self-worth and I was trying to fill that pain and that void in my life with things of this world that just made that pain and that void in my life so much bigger and I was just going down a dangerous dark and downward spiral in life. I knew that my sins were deemed unforgivable in Islam and I knew that I was so extremely hated by Allah and at that time I was trying to search for some form of forgiveness and hope and that's when I went to the Quran, I actually opened the Quran and, and I stumbled upon Surah 4, 168 through 169 and it goes something like this, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but Allah does not forgive those who reject the faith and do wrong and that he doesn't lead them to into a better path and the only path that he leads them to is to hell. And I remember reading that and just feeling so much fear and hopelessness. I said, Allah, I don't know who you are. I don't even know if you exist. And telling him that and I've been praying to you for 20 some years and I've never felt your presence and crying and just thinking of ways how I can end my life because if there is no form of forgiveness for me in Islam, then what's the point of me living? And as I was crying, out of nowhere, I heard an audible voice. I heard the name Jesus. So I you know, looked up to the heavens and I opened my hands and I had tears going down my face and I said, Jesus, I'm like, I don't know who you are, but if you are who you say you are, please reveal yourself to me because I can't go on living life like this anymore. And that was the first time ever from praying that I ever felt any form of peace. The boyfriend that I was dating, he and I broke up and I met a young man who was just so different from anyone that I'd ever met, very loving and it intrigued me and we started dating and um, I was in his house one day and found, I saw that he had a Bible, an open Bible on his desk and I remember thinking, oh, I'm, like, I'm dating a Christian. And shortly thereafter I met his parents and grandparents and I just remember observing them and just thinking, you know, they, they have love, they have this joy, they have this peace and this freedom and it's like I want, I've always wanted what they had and I remember thinking, they have Jesus in their lives. I approached him and I asked him if he would take me to church. Church was great, but I felt like I needed a little bit more. So I asked him if his grandparents would do Bible studies with me. I remember reading Romans 5.8 for the first time, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us is not a response to our goodness, but in spite of our lack of goodness. And, and at that moment, I realized how different it is being a Muslim from being a Christian. That's when I decided to be baptized and become a follower of Jesus. For years, I lived with a lot of anger towards my dad. Four years ago, he was binge drinking and was dying. And I prayed to the Lord that he would soften my heart towards my dad and I'd ask him if he can help me see him the way he sees him. And 
I was on the phone with my dad and I said, Baba, Jesus loves you. Uh, you could spend eternity with him and us one day and he died on the cross for you and your sins are, are forgiven if you give your life to him. I said, Baba, do you receive Christ into your life? I was expecting no, but he was an op with a big yes. He said, yes, I do. And I was so excited to hear that. And he said, I'm so excited you know, to see you guys one day. And I said, it's not going to feel like we're going to be apart for too long. If you're a Muslim, I would say there's a verse, John 10, 10, where God says, you know, I've come to give them life and to give them life in fullness, you know. The abundant love that he has for all of us is, there's nothing like it. And I know that he wants Muslims to experience that and more. You know, I lived with so much shame, with so much condemnation, with all these things that just weighed me down all these years. And the only freedom that I found from that was only through Jesus Christ. So yeah, <laughs> powerful testimonies, huh? When we encounter Muslims and seek to spread the truth about God to them, there are obviously going to be disagreements and misconceptions, but we can still have successful gospel conversations with them and plant the seeds of salvation in their minds and in their hearts that might lead them to seek the truth of Esau for themselves. When they claim that Jesus was only a prophet, we can explain that according to the Quran, Allah himself names Jesus the Messiah and the promised salvation, not merely a man with some powerful words. When they claim that the Bible has been changed or corrupted, we can explain that in the Quran, Allah tells Muhammad to go to the people of the word, the followers of Christ, if he has questions or doubts, which can be found in Jonah 10.94 of the Quran. When they claim that Jesus did not die, we can explain that one verse, that's verse 4.157 of the Quran, indicates Jesus did not die on the cross, but that other several verses of the Quran indicate that he did die. And which can be found in the Quran in 3.55, and 19.33. When they claim that saying, Son of God, is blasphemy, we can explain that in Matthew 3.17, Allah calls Esau his beloved son. In Mark 5.7, the demons respectfully say, Esau, son of the Most High Allah. And in John 3.16, Jesus refers to himself as son. For Allah so loved the whole world, he gave his only son. When they claim that we believe in three gods, we can explain that Muslims have a title for Jesus, Isa Ru Allah, which means Jesus is God's spirit. Isa is Jesus, Ru is spirit, and Allah is is God. This is the three-in-one concept explained very simply in their language and in their worldview. Allah is simply the Father, Esau is the Son, and the Ru or the Spirit dwells in the hearts of all true believers. There is only one God, 
but the three parts of the total essence exist at all times, even before creation and after our existence. Ask the Muslims you encounter if they know and are familiar with the Injil or the Injil Sharif. It is the gospel. Injil means the good news. If they have studied the Injil or have any questions about it, ask them about it. Ask, like, as in, sorry, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Ask them if they have studied the Injil or have any questions about it. Be prepared to answer them um, or be prepared to direct them to those who can answer their questions. And most importantly, be prepared to give short explanations of your faith, your testimony, your encounters with Christ, and the truly good news of the salvation for their sin with them. Always be willing to have gospel conversations with them. If the one you're conversing with decides then and there to accept God's free gift of eternal life, seize the moment and encourage them to pray and tell God that they accept his gift. Get the person's contact information and follow up. Invite the person to your church, your Bible study groups, or just meet them at their home or favorite gathering places. If they merely seem interested or want to know more, get their email or phone number and begin sending them resources. Bible verses, sermons, podcasts, memes, uh, personal testimonies. Arrange a future meeting and continue to discuss the salvation of the Son and His atoning sacrifice with those who seem interested in the good news or the Injil. If they are not interested, if they are just flat out not interested in hearing about it, just be content in attempting to share the free gift with them and pray that maybe a seed has been planted in their minds or in their hearts and let them know that you will always be willing to discuss with them or meet with them in the future if they are being led to spiritually seek the word. Be the lighthouse, shining the light out into the darkness that they can always choose to return to or come into the harbor. Always be willing to share your Bible stories, your story, your encounters with Christ, and the positive change that has been made in your life now that you have found Christ and received salvation for your sins. Everyone loves a good story, right? <laughs> Everyone loves a good story. That's undeniable. We share them, we remember them, they touch our hearts, they affect our decision-making, and transform our worldviews. Be ready at all times to share your story and to share a gospel story with all people at all times. Mark 5 is a really good place to just see the power of Esau at work, and they can be very powerful stories to share with non-believers, especially Muslims. Mark 5 is about, you know, three, three, basically three, three stories where people encountered Christ and became better as a result. The demon-possessed man who was cured by encountering Jesus and believing in him. The woman who had faith that Jesus could heal her from even just touching his clothes. And, you know, the daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And the Pharisee's daughter who was raised from the dead. Mark 5 is a great place to start. Um, 
I mean, all of the Gospels are just story after story of this. Those who encountered Jesus and accepted him and had faith in him and were healed and saved, and those who chose not to, who rejected him and were not, and suffered as a result. Many people throughout the Injil or the Gospel encountered Christ and were drastically changed as a result. They were cured of their sickness, sicknesses, and they were forgiven of their sins, and they left their yesterdays behind them, walking forward into a beautiful, powerful, amazing tomorrow as a result of placing their faith in Esau al-Masih. Having a gospel story or two ready to share with Muslims you encounter um, is so crucial, as well as your own story and that those those having a gospel story and having your own story um, ready to, ready and available to share with any and all Muslims or just non-believers in general that you encounter can make for a lot of positive change in this world and in your own forever after. The theme of sacrifice for sin is found all throughout the Islamic faith and throughout the Islamic world but it usually is your own sacrifice. It's sacrificing your life for sin. The gospel, the Injil, is just the final truth of that put into spiritual practice. Esau was the final, ultimate sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And we are all offered that gift if we choose to accept it. Be born again into a new life with his spirits, with his spirit in our hearts, and choose to live with eyes for eternity, focused upon entering into the Father's kingdom in good standing, bringing with us as many of his children as we possibly can. Yeah. So long, long and short summary of it all is Muslims know the Father, they want to obey, they want to do what's right, and they just lack the spiritual salvation. They lack that connection, that final step, which is accepting Jesus as the sacrifice for their sins and accepting the salvation that is afforded to them through faith in Christ. So if you can lead them to Jesus, if you can point them to the gospel, and to Jesus, if you can help them encounter Jesus, um, they will be saved. And again, if we don't, Jesus, <laughs> Esau finds a way to encounter them on his own through dreams, through dreams and visions. But we as well, when we encounter these people in our life, and it's going to happen more and more. If you live in a city in America, you're going to encounter Muslims. And one way or another. And you need to be willing to share your story and share the gospel story with them and lead them to the salvation that they don't have. They know all about God. They want to obey God, but they just don't yet have that spiritual connection to God that you have. And you can help lead them there. You can help bridge, be the bridge that leads them to God, to a spiritual, personal, inward connection to God. I don't think the chat's working today. Twitch isn't working. I tried to like re-sign up for Twitch and it didn't work. So Twitch hates me, I guess. Um, no one's on Trovo. No one's on Periscope. No one's on YouTube. <laughs> 
Three people are on DLive. No one's in the chat. I don't know if things are broken or if it's just a bad day. Um, but yeah, going to switch switch up the days anyways. Maybe that'll help. Maybe Saturday mornings wasn't <laughs> ever the smartest or the greatest choice to live stream, but it was just the day that always worked for me. Now it doesn't work for me, so we're switching it up. And we're going to end today with a long clip. So it's going to be like a half hour. I think it's like a 30, 35 minute clip. Well worth the listen or the watch. We're going to end today's stream with that. So stay tuned. Um, it's very worthwhile. So please keep listening, keep watching. Dig in for it. Hear him all the way through, all the way out. This man, Nabil Qureshi, has a lot of clips and talks online about his conversion and his newfound faith in the salvation that only Jesus can offer us. He breaks down his journey and the gospel itself very well, and his words and his story are truly valuable for all to hear, and likely a very valuable resource to send to any Muslims that you encounter who seem to be seeking the truth and seem to be open to the gospel message. And I will be back live again on my new streaming time next Monday, September 6th at 8 p.m. Central Time, which is nine days from now, not two days from now, but nine days from now, and not next Saturday morning. Um, it was a good run, my Saturday morning folks, who are not even here today. <laughs> it was a good run Saturday morning. But my new regular streaming time, again, is going to be Monday nights, at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central Time, here on the Sean V. Planet channel, on DLive, on YouTube, Trovo, Periscope, and Twitch, if it ever works. <laughs> occasionally on Instagram Live, when I don't have too many clips, um, streaming clips, because um, it doesn't really translate, it doesn't really directly go over to Instagram Live. Um, and yeah, so also follow and subscribe to my Instagram to catch those and all my live streaming platforms to watch me live, be in the chat. And if you can't, if you can't make it on Monday nights, be sure to catch the replays um, on my YouTube account, my Rumble account, my BitChute account. Those are my replay videos and just listen to all the podcasts on, on all of, listen to all the replays on all of the podcast apps. If you want to listen, Sean V. Planet is the account name on all the places, S-E-A-N-V-P-L-A-N-E-T. Um, that is until I get shadow banned or censored, <laughs> until the internet persecution comes. And just SeanVPlanet.com for all my other links, all my resources, all the stuff. If you want to donate, there's buttons there. Uh, if you want to listen to me on other people's podcasts, there's stuff there. Um, and then, yeah, again, good news for my dudes. Episodes are there and more are going to be coming soon. I'll be more regular with that. And I will be with you all again next Monday night. Next Monday night, September 6th, 8 p.m. Central Time. Until then, be sure to go out this week and do good, be good, love, and be loved. As always, seek what is good, true, and beautiful. Keep crushing. Don't ever stop. And share the good news that is the gospel with and the powerful word of Esau with all of the people at all of the times, everywhere you go. I love you guys. Take care. And I hope you enjoy this final clip.
always be ready to share a reason for the hope that lies within you. And the first time I met a Christian who was ready with that was in college. So I've already decimated the faith of a lot of people going up to college. And then I get to college very confident in myself. And I meet a friend. Now this friend and I were out on a public speaking and uh, debate tournament. And uh, we were sharing a room together. And I saw him one night reading the Bible. And I thought, okay, this will be fun. Let's take down another Christian. It'll be amusing. And so I look at my friend. His name was David. I said, David, do you realize that book you're reading is not trustworthy? It's been corrupted over time. And he's reading his Bible, and he closes it, and he says, go on. Which should have been a sign for me that this wasn't going to go my way, but I just <laughs> kept going. And I said, David, Jesus spoke Aramaic, did he not? And then the earliest church was in Palestine, it was in Jerusalem, it was, it was in Israel, so they must have spoken Hebrew, but by the time the New Testament's written, it's written in Greek. So you have a translation of a translation of Jesus' words before it's ever written down. And then the New Testament that lasted the longest period of time in the church was not actually in Greek, it was in Latin. So you have another translation, then it's in Latin for a thousand years before it comes into German, and from German it goes into English, and that's where we get the KJV. It's a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation, which is why you have the KJV, the NIV, the ESV, the NASV, the who knows what V. You got so many versions of the Bible, how can I know which one's actually the word of God? Now that had worked on many Christians, and I was ready for him to crumple under the weight of my argumentation. But David looked at me and he said, Nabil, let me ask you a question. Just a few minutes ago, I heard you speaking to your mom on the phone. Was that in English? I said, no. And he said, but when you told me what she said, you told me in English. Was that a corrupted translation? No. He said, Nabil, when you are multilingual, you can take a message that's given in one language and accurately translate that message into another language, and you've preserved the message. And that's exactly what the disciples did. They're able to listen to Jesus, whatever language Jesus spoke, and write it in Greek. And of that Greek New Testament manuscript, we have in our possession over 6,000 copies today. And he said, Nabil, if we didn't have any one of those copies, we have in our possession over 10,000 Latin, Coptic, and Syriac translations of the early Greek New Testament manuscripts. And he said, if we didn't have any of those translations, we have over 30,000 quotations of the New Testament from the early church fathers with which we can reconstruct virtually the entire New Testament many times over again. Nabil, we know with certainty the message of the original New Testament. And I looked at him and I said, David, you're making this up. <laughs> I said, I've talked to dozens of Christians. No one have told me this before. He said, you think I'm making this up? I said, yeah, I think you're making this up. He said, well, you, didn't, you better bring it. I'm like, it's been brought. Let's go. <laughs> and so from that point on, David and I start arguing about these things, but we do it in a pursuit of truth. In fact, we start arguing so much that we decide to start signing up for classes together so we can sit in the back and argue with each other the whole time. We go to each other's houses and study and just argue some more. And over the course of time, because we spent so much time together in pursuit of truth, we became best friends. I ended up being one of the groomsmen at his wedding. He, I was there when his first child was born. All of this time I spent with him becoming closer to him, and in that, I knew that David would take a bullet for me. 
And when you can trust someone and they share the gospel with you, it makes a huge impact. If you don't know you can trust someone and they tell you to lay down your life and pick up the cross, why would you listen to them? But if you have someone who's trying to tear down your worldview and you know that they love you, then you will engage with them and you will listen to them. So that friendship was absolutely critical in order for me to begin to hear the gospel. And it took a long time. This wasn't an overnight event. But after about a year, I came to the conclusion, all right, the New Testament manuscripts are reliable. I didn't believe in the gospel or anything like that. It was just the New Testament manuscripts. It took me a year. But I realized the way that the New Testament manuscripts proliferated, the way they were written down and sent throughout the early church, there was no one who was able to control these manuscripts and edit them in such a way that a change would not be detected. Simply no way to do that. So after about a year, I came to the conclusion that there is no way for the New Testament to have been uniformly and undetectably altered. Not possible. And so I went back to David and I said, all right, David, I see that the New Testament is reliable, but I don't see Jesus claiming to be God anywhere in the New Testament. Now keep in mind, this is the biggest sticking point for Muslims. Because like I said earlier, Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Muslims believe that Jesus was the most miraculous man who ever lived. Some Muslims believe he's the only sinless prophet, truly sinless prophet who ever walked this earth. But the moment you say Jesus is God, in a Muslim's eyes, you are committing the worst blasphemy you could ever possibly commit. The Quran says very clearly, chapter 4, verse 171, as well as chapter 5, verse 72, that if you believe Jesus is God, you will go to hell. There's no arguing with that in the Muslim worldview. Chapter 5, verse 116 shows Jesus having a conversation with Allah. And Allah asked Jesus, did you ever tell people to worship you? And he said, by no means. Do I have the right to tell them to do something like that? And so the idea that Jesus is God is blasphemy in Islam, and they're trying to defend God when they say there's no way Jesus is God. So the question for me, now that I came to the point of realization that the New Testament was reliable, I said, okay, fine, but Jesus never claims to be God in that. And now I began to study with a little bit more depth. I began to try to look at things. My friend David first handed me the Gospel of John. He said, here, read this. And as I read the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1 says that Jesus is God. <laughs> Don't have to go too far. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, what is the Word? You go down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. I'm looking at these sets of verses, and I'm trying to find a way around this, because again, from childhood, I've been told Jesus couldn't be God. And now that I believe the New Testament's reliable, how could it possibly say this? So the way I defended that was by saying, well, Jesus isn't saying he's God here. This is John, the author. I want to see Jesus say he's God. Then as you go through the Gospel of John, you see things that Jesus says. Like in John chapter 8, verse 58, some Jews ask him, they say, you're not even 50 years old, yet you claim to have seen Abraham. And Jesus' response is, amen, amen. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, you know, when you're Muslim, you haven't heard the term I am before. You don't know what that means. But when someone points you to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God tells Moses that his name is Anahu, I am, that now it begins to make sense what Jesus is saying. Someone asks him, you're not even 50 years old. Jesus' response is, I am? I eternally exist even before Abraham was born? Yes, because he's taking the name of the God of Moses. It's pretty clear. And by the way, if there are any Muslims listening and thinking that's not convincing enough, go to John 20, 28. 
where someone calls Jesus God, and Jesus' response is basically, finally, <laughs> took you long enough. So then my response to that was, well, forget the Gospel of John. It was written too late. That's not reliable. I want to go to the first Gospel. I want to see where it was written early on. Did Jesus claim to be God? Fortunately, I don't have all the time to go into the details here, but I will tell you this. The culmination of Mark's Gospel, the very first Gospel ever written, is Mark 14, 62. And in this one verse, Jesus makes two, if not three, references to the Old Testament, saying, I am the God of Moses, I am the God of Daniel, I am the God of David. And he does it so clearly that the high priests immediately tear their robes and say, you have heard the blasphemy, what shall we do? And that's the reason why they decided to crucify him. And they would have been right to crucify him if he were God. So Jesus claims to be God. Now imagine what this is doing to my mind because I as a Muslim have now come to the conclusion that the New Testament is reliable and in that New Testament I'm seeing Jesus claim to be God. This makes everything I've ever been taught about Islam false because we're supposed to revere Jesus. But here's evidence he claimed to be God. How can I do that? And this cognitive dissonance began to drive me nuts. Up until this point, I was just arguing with my friend David. But now I come to the realization that this investigation may very well determine the course of my life. And so I start praying fervently. And in the middle of these prayers, I go back to my friend David and I say, well, I need to have a case. I need to have good, solid reasoning for what would make Christianity true. Because Christians believe all kinds of things. There's different denominations. Some Christians believe this. Some Christians believe that. What is the thing that would make the core of Christianity true? And I found it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You didn't know there was going to be a pop quiz involved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus has to be God. He has to die on the cross and then rise from the dead for Christianity to be true. Now this is actually a very interesting case. By the time I was uh, wrestling with some of these things, I was in medical school. As a fourth year medical student, I spent a lot of time in the psychiatry ward. (laughs) Spent a lot of time working in the psychiatry ward. And while I was there, I used to see people come up and say to me, in delusions of grandeur, Nabil, I am God. And my response to them would be, well, we have a room for you. <laughs> Come on in. The, to claim to be God is pathological. And in the first century, if someone claims to be God, it's the same response. You are crazy. But if that man then says, no, wait, watch, I will be killed, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. And that's my proof for you that I am God. Now we have something to watch. Now we have something to see. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus' claim to be God. Anybody can claim to be God, but if someone claims to be God and then proves it by rising from the dead, then there's someone to believe. So the question is, is there evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Again, if some people want to ask questions about this or if it wants to come up in the Q&A, then we can discuss it a little bit more. But as I investigated the evidence surrounding Jesus' death, I came to the conclusion that the evidence pointed uniformly to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now there's something very profound in that because as a Muslim, 
the Quran doesn't even let you believe that Jesus died on the cross. The Quran says in Surah An-Nisa, which is chapter 4, verse 157, He was not killed, nor was he crucified, but so it appeared to them. So the Quran denies that Jesus was killed by crucifixion. But if you study the history of Jesus' life, I'm not talking about Christians studying the history of Jesus' life. I'm talking about atheist, skeptical, agnostic scholars like Paula Fredrickson, like Marcus Borg, like Bart Ehrman, none of whom are Christians. All of them say, if we can know anything about Jesus' life, it's that he died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. The death of Jesus is the most solid fact regarding his life, historically speaking, and that alone challenges the truth of the Quran. And as a Muslim, I had to really wrestle with that. And then I have all this evidence that he actually rose from the dead. If you want some of that evidence, I would suggest you read a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. So I'm seeing this evidence, and I'm seeing a case for Jesus' deity and for Christianity being built up. So... By the way, this has taken three years of friendship with David to get to this point. Not an overnight quest. So David and I are going home from a very manly place. We were at a smoothie bar. (laughs) On the way back, David asks me, he says, Nabil, we've been looking into this for quite a while. Where do you think the case for Christianity falls? From zero to 100, if zero was absolutely not true and 100 was absolutely true, where do you think the case for Christianity stands? I, investig- I just thought about each criterion there. Well, it's 99% sure Jesus died on the cross, about 90% sure he claimed to be God, 90% sure he rose from the dead. I'm putting it at 80 to 85%, David. And he about spits out the smoothie, which is not cool because it was my car. And he looks at me and he says, Nabil, well, why don't you accept the gospel then? And I said, David, it's because I'm 100% sure in Islam. Even if I'm 80 to 85% believing in the case of Christianity, the case for Islam is stronger. And he looked at me and he said, Nabil, you haven't even looked critically at the case for Islam. And I said, I know. But I'm just that certain. I've heard evidences of the Quran from childhood. I've heard evidences of Muhammad from childhood. I am certain that Islam is true. And he says, well, put it to the test. And here's the critical thing. He says, test it to the same degree you tested Christianity. The same level of skepticism, apply the same historical criteria, and then tell me what you end up with. And I was very confident. I said, sure, no problem. And so I applied the same level of skepticism, historically speaking. I'm going to have to be brief, but here's what I found. When it came to Jesus, I was extremely skeptical of the Gospel of John, for example, because John's Gospel, according to critical scholars now, not according to Christians, but according to critical scholars, John's Gospel is written between 60 and maybe at the latest 70 years after Jesus' death. And so I was critical of John's Gospel. The first time anyone wrote anything about Muhammad's life was 150 years after his death. And then the person who wrote it, actually that book was lost. And what we have is somebody else who saved portions of that book and said, I only saved a portion of this book because the rest of it, I felt, was just unbelievable. So the first piece of evidence we have on Muhammad's life comes much, much later than the first evidence we have on Jesus' life. And it was claimed by the person who saved it to have been unreliable. 
And I began doing the side-by-side comparison. Okay, what's the history of the Quran compared to the Bible? Okay, what's Muhammad's life look like? Now, I had been taught from childhood that Muhammad was the most amazing man who ever existed. I had been taught that Muhammad was a great statesman, a great diplomat, a great general, a great leader. I had been taught that he was a great husband and a defender of women's rights and a defender of the downtrodden. That's how Muslims see Muhammad. And so when you see Muslims revering Muhammad, that's the man they're revering, this legendary great man. But when I studied the historical evidence, not only was it late and not really reliable, but when I actually looked at what it said, that Muhammad in the pages of history was very different from the Muhammad in the hearts of Muslims. And I realized I had to pick one or the other. And if I was going to be honest, and I was going to follow David's challenge and apply critical historical criteria, this was the Muhammad I'd have to believe existed. A violent one. And so I said, okay, I can't rely on Muhammad then. Maybe I have to rely on the inspiration of the Quran. Because Muslims believe in the Shahada. In order to become Muslim, you have to believe in the Shahada, which is La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. So there's no God but Allah, and I tried to defend that through the Quran, and Muhammad is his messenger. I tried to defend that by investigating his life. This part didn't work, so I then turned to the Quran, and I started saying, well, The Quran must be the word of God. And I went to all the apologetic reasons that I'd been given from childhood as to why the Quran is the word of God. I'd been told the Quran had never changed. I'd been told that the Quran had miracles inside it, miraculous scientific knowledge. I'd been told that the Quran had uh, prophecies of the future. And as I began to investigate each and every single one of these claims, again, with the same critical eye that I used on Christianity, it began to crumble. And when you apply, and I will say this now after having looked at many different worldviews, when you apply the same level of skepticism to Christianity, to any other worldview, Christianity comes out on top. Every single time. And I'm talking way on top. I had a conversation just the other day with some friends at Oxford who were atheists. And they were telling me, Nabil, I have issues with Christianity here, 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 and here. And I said, I see that. But apply those same skeptical criticisms to atheism. And all of a sudden, a look of realization dawned upon them. Because they were beginning to compare. And as Oz Guinness says, someone who works with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, he says, comparison, contrast, is the mother of clarity. And when I compared Islam to Christianity, I realized Christianity came way on top. Now, this is when my world fell into crisis. Because I couldn't just all of a sudden accept the gospel. If I were to do that, then I would be bringing tremendous shame upon my family. And Muslim families often come from honor-shame backgrounds. So to give you an idea, everything my grandfather did, everything my great-grandfather did in preaching Islam was to build honor and and pride in the community. And if their grandson, if their great-grandson became Christian, then it's as if I leveled all the honor they ever gained in their entire lives. And it's not just me who's gonna be looked at with shame from my family. My family, my mother and father who spent their whole lives pouring into me, if I become a Christian, I'm bringing shame to them and I drag their reputation through the mud and now their lives are destroyed because of my decision. 
And so these kinds of considerations make it extremely difficult for a Muslim to consider becoming a Christian. On top of that, there is something called the law of apostasy in Islam. Traditionally speaking, and to, to be a little bit more specific, all four schools of traditional Sunni Islam and all three major schools of traditional Shia Islam teach that if you leave Islam, you can be killed in various circumstances. They disagree on the circumstances, but they all agree that it can happen. And so a Muslim has to think about maybe giving up his social life for sure, and maybe even destroying his family's social life, and then maybe even giving up your life itself because of the law of apostasy. And then if you're wrong about all this, the Quran says you're going to hell. Everything, literally, is balanced. And it makes it extremely difficult for someone to leave Islam. So at this point, I fell to my knees and started asking God in the daily prayers, outside of the daily prayers, I'm asking God, God, I need you to reveal yourself to me. I, I have looked, and it looks like Islam is not true. Please forgive me for saying that. And it looks like Christianity might be true. Please forgive me for saying that. Can you tell me who you are? Now, to give you a little bit of understanding and insight into Islamic culture, the veil is not torn down the way Christians believe. According to Islam, the veil is still up. Muslims don't commune with God. Even the prophets didn't commune with God. The prophets spoke to angels who spoke to God. So Muslims aren't ready to just receive information from God. They're not of that kind of status. They don't think so anyway. But there's one way that Muslims expect to hear directly from God. Anyone know? Dreams. Muslims believe that they can receive dreams from God. For guidance. And so they ask God for dreams for guidance. There's a special type of prayer called Salat Istikhara where Muslims specifically get on their knees and say, God, guide me through dreams. My dad chose his jobs based on those. My sister chose her husband based on dreams. Uh, we, we decided when to move based on dreams. And by the way, some of these dreams became prophetically true. For example, my mother, uh, when she got married to my father, she had a dream that she was planting four seeds in the ground. And two of those seeds grew up into trees, and two did not. She goes to my aunt, and she says, I just had this dream. And my aunt says to her, blessed are you, for God has already told you that you will be pregnant four times, and you will have two children and two miscarriages. Fast forward 17 years, that's exactly what happened. I've got some creepy stories I could share with you, but we don't have enough time. This happens very regularly. Now, why does it happen? Could be a variety of reasons. Is it God giving the dreams? Is it something else giving the dreams? It could be a variety of things. That's not my point. My point is that Muslims expect to hear from God based on dreams, and on the face of it, they have good reason to believe that. And so I asked God for dreams and visions, and I ultimately received one vision and three dreams. I'll give you the second dream because that was the one that was most powerful for me. I wanted something very clear, and God gave me a very clear dream. By the way, at this point, it's been about four years since David and I started discussing Christianity and Islam. In this dream, I'm standing at the threshold of a narrow door. This door is just wide enough to fit me, just tall enough to fit me. And there's some depth to it, maybe five or seven feet. It's made of brick, an archway kind of as I look into that doorway, there's a room set with a feast. Round tables, people sitting at this feast. The food is, has been put out. 
and people are in fine clothes. It's like a wedding feast, and they're about to start eating, but they haven't started yet. They're all looking that direction. They're waiting for the owner or the speaker or whoever to come and start this feast. And I want to get into that room because I know that that room is heaven, but I can't because at the other end of the doorway is my friend David. He's also sitting and waiting. He's not looking at me, but he's kind of blocking the way. I can't get past him. And so I say to him in the dream, I thought we were going to eat together. And he says, you haven't responded. And in the dream, I knew that I had to respond to David's invitation in order to get into heaven. But here's where it gets crazy. When I woke up, I called David, and I asked him, what do you think this dream means? And it was the first time I heard someone's eyes roll over the phone. (laughs) And he says, Nabil, this dream is so clear, I don't need to interpret it for you. Just go to the Bible. And I said, what do you mean? He says, go to Luke chapter 13. Now, David knew his scriptures, by the way, and he had given me a Bible, a study Bible. And when I turned to Luke chapter 13, it said in big, bold letters, the narrow door. Now, the moment I saw that, my heart skipped a beat because that was the most powerful symbol in my dream. And I started reading. I'm going to paraphrase it for you, and basically, here's what it says. Jesus was going through the towns and villages preaching the good news, and the disciples asked him, Lord, are many going to be saved? And he said, make every effort to enter through that narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try, and few will be able. And you will see people sitting inside at the wedding feast of heaven. Make every effort to enter before the owner comes and closes that door. I had never read this section of the Bible before, and I knew God had given me a dream where he placed me right into the middle of this parable, and he told me where I stood. So I looked up at God, and I said, God, I need another dream. Don't judge me, Christians. (laughs) So I asked for another dream. God gave me another dream. And then at the end of that summer, I remember driving to school. By this point, I'm starting my second year of medical school. The first conversation I had with David was my freshman year of college. And so I'm starting my second year of med school. But at this point, I've had three dreams. I have all this evidence. I have guidance from God, yet I haven't converted. And this is the reason why. As I'm driving to school, I say to God, God, I know what I need to do, but I need time to mourn. I need time to mourn. By the way, I'm just crying. I'm just losing it in the car. Not a good state to go to school in. So I go back to my apartment, and I don't know what I'm doing. So I pull out the Quran and the Bible, and I say, God, just give me comfort. And I open up the Quran, and I start reading it. For the first time in my life, I start reading the Quran, not for liturgical reasons, but for personal guidance. And as I'm looking for comfort, I realized There is not a single verse in the Quran designed to to comfort a hurting man. Not one. And so I realized this book didn't even apply to my life, and I put it away. And I turned to the Bible. I said, I don't even know where to start in the Bible. I'd never gone to it for personal guidance either. I'd just gone to it to try to tear it down. And so I say, fine, I'll just start with the New Testament. Opened it to Matthew chapter 1. Saw a bunch of genealogies, so I skipped them. I had an excuse. I was a Muslim. I don't know what your excuse is. <laughs> I skipped him. It didn't take me long to get to Matthew chapter 5, where it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when I saw those words, it was like electric on the page, and it like jumped off the page and started my heart. That's what it felt like. 
as I'm reading these words, I'm thinking, Jesus said that for me. Forget you guys, he said that for me 2,000 years ago. And I, start, I honestly start reading this, and every single verse I start reading, I begin to feel like I'm having a conversation with the Bible. I ask God a question, like, God, how do I know you can hear my prayers? And then I read the footnote on the study Bible. It says, if you want to know, God can hear your prayers. Go to 1 John 5. Sweet. Boom. And so I'm reading the Bible, going back and forth. And I finally get to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 says, He who proclaims me before the people of this world, I will proclaim before my Father in heaven. And he who denies me before the people of this world, I will deny before my Father in heaven. See, I had all the evidence that I needed. I had all the spiritual guidance I had asked for. And now I had emotional comfort through the word, knowing it was the word of God, but I hadn't proclaimed. I looked at God and I said, God, if if I do this though, I have to give up my family. Matthew chapter 10's next verses, you want to know what they are? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. As I read that, I said, God, it's not just my parents, though. It's my whole life. What the next verses say? He who is not willing to pick up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Yeah, God knows the cost. The cost that Muslims have to pay today, the cost that you might have to pay if you're listening to this, is not a new cost. It's the cost the disciples had to pay from the very beginning. It's the cost we all must be ready to pay if we're going to follow Jesus. And so I got on my knees, and I prayed something. (laughs) No one had told me about the sinner's prayer. I prayed something that sounded very Muslim, but uh, I did say, Lord, I believe you are Jesus, and I submit to you. And I thank you for having taken my sins, died on the cross, and risen from the dead. I want to follow you with my life. And that moment, I had intellectually assented to the gospel. But I don't think I had really grasped the gospel quite yet. That wasn't until a few days later. When I saw my father cry for the first time in my life. My father was a 24-year veteran of the U.S. Navy. To me, he was like my archetype of strength. He was like my Superman. And here's what he said to me, and this is all he said. Nabil, today I feel as if my backbone has been ripped out from inside me. And my mother didn't say a word. It was like there was a light that had been in her eyes up until that day, and I just turned it off. She hasn't been the same since. And after that conversation with them, I just fell on my knees and just started saying to God, God, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me, God? Because before they found out, I was a believer, I was saved, I would go to heaven if you killed me, I'd be happy, you'd be happy, they'd be happy, we'd all be happy if you just killed me before I had to tell them, why didn't you kill me? And in that moment, you know how you get when sometimes you're crying, you just start repeating stuff? I'm just like, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you give back all kinds of stuff coming out of my face? I got like saliva and tears and mucus, and I'm just, God, why didn't you kill me? And as I'm saying that, repeating that, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? I heard these words. Because this is not about you. In that moment, my life, my theology, my everything was just rebooted. And I stood up from there, 
and I walked outside. By the way, this is, I had been crying all night, so this is the next morning. I walk outside, and I know this sounds cliche, but it's true. Everything looked different. Everything looked different. It was the same apartment, the same tree, the same street, but it all looked different. And the one thing that looked the most different was when I saw someone walking across the street. Now, I'd seen that millions of times before, but for the first time, I realized that's not just someone. That's someone that God was willing to die for. Can you, I mean, think about this. As a Muslim my whole life, I believe that God sat on his throne and he would never enter into this world and he ruled us from above and he gave us a bunch of things to do and he would judge us at the end of time. But this story is that God was willing to enter into this world in a filthy world. And he was willing to, to live as a carpenter, blue-collar laborer. And he's willing to live with people who would ultimately betray him. And then he's willing to go to a cross and suffer and die for the sake of sinners. Our God, who created the universe, all the stars in the sky, he just thought them into existence. That God is willing to die And as he tells us that he loves us so much, he's willing to die for us, this is what he says. As I have loved you, so love one another. And if I'm willing to watch someone walk across the street and let them go about their day, and I'm not willing to love them so much that I'm ready to die for them, then how am I following Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus if he's willing to die for people who sinned against him and I'm not? How am I a follower of Jesus? And in that moment, I realized what the gospel was. The gospel is not something that you just hear and believe. If it doesn't change your life, it hasn't hit you yet. And in that moment, I realized that this God is worth everything. This story is worth sharing with our lives. Oh, and our lives are in his hands. And if we die today, we're gonna be taken care of, but there are millions, in fact, billions of people for whom that is not the case. And if we lived every second of our lives for their sakes, only then would we truly honor this God who is willing to live the life we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died. That's our God. And that's my story. So let's pray together. God, I know that there are people here in this room who are hearing some of this for the first time. That we don't believe off of blind faith. That's not what you've called us to do. You've called us to have a reason for the hope that lies within us. You've told us to be able to explain the truth gently. God, there are people here who are beginning to hear what the Christian message is all about. Not believing in my God versus your God or not believing in in all these crazy things, but believing in a God who loves us so much he is willing to pay the penalty for us. A God who loves us not based on performance, but because he's our father. And fathers love their sons no matter what they do. God, I pray that you would just enter into people's hearts right now. And I pray, Lord, as we finish out tonight, as we go into Q&A, God, that you would be leading hearts and minds right now. Now, whether here in this room or across cyberspace, God, we need you. This life is too short to live on our own. We need you in this moment. So God, please be with us. Please prompt our hearts and please lead us for the rest of this night. We pray in your son Jesus' name, amen.
Follow Sean on social media at Sean B. Planet. Acast Audio is on the Sean B. Planet channel on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. His videos are on YouTube and BitChute. Live streams on DLive and Twitch. Blogs, links, and other stuff can be found at SeanBPlanet.com.